Good morning. <clears throat> Bonjour. <laughs> it's a pleasure to be here this morning. Uh, this is my third service with you guys, and as different uh, as each one is, uh, it's still the same beautiful people, and it's really been a pleasure to be among you guys. Um, this is really a special place, I, and, I, and I've said it each time, but it really is a truly sincere, I, I feel at home here. Um, they're going to have to stop me from moving in so I can get back to work. Uh, because uh, your congregation, it, it's just uh, special to be among you guys. Um, I'm gonna, I want to jump right in today um, because I want to speak a little bit about what it means to seek the kingdom of God. What does that mean? What does that actually look like? To seek the kingdom, to seek righteousness. Um, many times in our lives we are very much focused on the here and now, uh, the current concerns and the worries of our day, um, of our families, and we, it's right to lift those up before God, and it's right to trust in God for that, but we need to keep a perspective on the gospel that is well beyond us, because it is well before us, it began way before us, and it will continue, and is an eternal gospel. And uh, Jesus, in Matthew chapter 6, verses 24 through 33, he gives us some advice um, as to what we should really be focused on in the day-to-day. I'm going to read that for you, and then uh, for the rest of the time, we'll spend uh, talking about people like Abraham and Moses from uh, Hebrews chapter 11. But for now, in Matthew chapter 6, let's look at verses 24 through 33 together. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field and how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all things will be added to you. This is the word of the Lord. So for me personally, uh, for the last nine months or so, just about everything that I've read has actually brought me back to this scripture. Um, it's universal. It, it, it brings focus. It, it tells us what should matter to us in the everyday life, and, and, and what should we build our day-to-day on is this eternal perspective. 
Um, it's been in all my you know, personal studies. Uh, I've preached on it several times at my own church in Haiti. Uh, our staff, when we gather on Monday mornings for our Bible study for the past three months or so, uh, it has been a topic. It is, is what does it mean to not worry about today? What does it mean to seek first the kingdom of God, to seek righteousness, especially that last verse, to seek the kingdom of God Seek righteousness, and all other things that we're concerned about will fall into place. But it's important for us to get an image of what it actually looks like. Because when we think of kingdoms, we might think of things that we see on, on, the, on movies, and we, don't fully, we may not fully grasp what it actually means to seek the kingdom of God. And... The other question is, did Jesus foresee the day that we're living in when he told us not to worry? This is a unique time in all of history, and nothing is sure. Everything is up in the air. We have world powers with more power than we've ever imagined that are picking fights with each other, showing off their latest weapons and you know, sneaking peeks at each other's personal and secret top, fi- top secret files. And they're playing with our own personal information. They're in digging into our own personal security and they're trading it and bartering it for selfish gain. The world is not the same. Even weather is unsure. Sometimes you're not sure if you should celebrate the fact that winter feels like spring because you know that also means that the summer might bring unprecedented hurricane seasons. You know that also might mean that in the fall you might see wildfires like you've never seen before. And just when you think spring is around the corner, here comes Snowzilla to cover the whole region and putting out power and putting people in vulnerable positions when we did not expect it. One thing is sure is that you can't trust last year's weather report to predict a trend for this year. And forget about the weather. What about the fact that we're not even sure if we can trust the ground that we're standing on to stay still? And on top of today's problems, we have yesterday's. We still haven't solved world hunger. We stopped thinking about world peace back in the 70s, and there's war in every report. War is always in the air. And this TV soap opera that we keep following called Politics, the plot is always thickening, yet we're never moving forward. And this is true not just for here or for Haiti, it's in every government around the world. But we're told, do not worry. Seek first the kingdom and seek first the king of that kingdom and the righteousness of that kingdom and everything else will fall into place. But then we have our everyday household issues. It's very simple, especially for parents who are scratching their head. It's as if it's a new trend for their kids every year. There's a growing gap between generations. We're not even sure how to raise our children anymore because they're nothing like we were when we were kids, right? Uh, but, uh, and then for the kids, the young people, we don't know how to deal with our parents. There's this gap that we just don't know how to even relate to one another these days. And then beyond that, there's more hunger in the United States than we even care to admit. There are a lot of people who are struggling to put food on the table and keep the lights on. Those are their everyday struggles that they worry about. But then we're told still not to worry and to seek the kingdom. But it's 
easy to become homeless today. I met a man in Baltimore um, that he lost his home and consequently he lost his family after faithfully paying for his home for 13 years. He was rounding the corner and, and then suddenly the economy takes a downturn, cuts his legs out from under him. He can't, he can't work and he can't pay his, his mortgage and everything's gone in a moment. Actually, the day that I met him, they had actually just auctioned off the last of his belongings from the storage closet that he wasn't able to pay for. Every day, there are many who are facing similar situations. There may be some of you who are here that that is your preoccupation. And in Haiti, where I come from, every day is heavy. Every day is... uh, you know, we, no one would blame the common person in Haiti for worrying about their daily bread. It's a legitimate concern. Or for worrying about tomorrow's clothing or next month's rent or worrying about next year's hurricane season when we're still trying to recover from this one. Yet, even in Haiti, we're given the exact same exhortation Do not worry. Seek first the kingdom of God. Seek righteousness, and it will all work out. So that brings me back to the first question. What does it actually mean to seek the kingdom? What does it actually look like to seek the kingdom? And that's a question I've been coming back to again for several months now, and and the best answers that I can find can only be illustrated in the stories of people who have done it well. Because I, I believe in the simplest terms that the answer to the question of seeking the kingdom is the same as what does it look like to have faith? What does it look like to live by faith? Faith is characterized by having a long-term vision for tomorrow's good, and that vision welcomes today's sacrifice. So in Hebrews chapter 11, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible and it's a favorite for many of you, perhaps, Um, we, we look at these scriptures and we're comforted to know that the intangible things that we hope for are in the hands of an all-powerful God. One who holds the universe together, and sure enough, he can hold our little world together. However, I find it unfortunate that many times when we read these verses that encourage us to have faith, our faith is still very much focused on the here and now. It's focused on the near future. And yes, we need to have faith that God will provide for today. That is important. But this scripture is painting a picture of people who had faith even for things they would never see with their eyes. And this is the kind of faith that we are called to. When we read, uh, I want to take a quick look, for example, at, uh, at the verses that remind us that this life of faith, this race of faith, as, as, you, as you would, um, it's not a sprint. We already know that. It's not a sprint. It's not a 5K. It's not even a marathon. Because in a marathon, you start and you finish, but this is one that we inherited the baton. And we may not be the end of that race. We may be passing it on to the next generation. It is a marathon relay. And it requires a certain amount of discipline. And we want to look in Hebrews 11 at a few men, particularly Abraham. 
You can't talk about faith without talking about Abraham. Abraham, uh, according to some Jewish traditions, Abraham actually wasn't poor when he left Haran, when he left his household, when he left his father. He, he, they actually believe that his father was possibly one of the high ups in, uh, in the kingdom of Babel, which probably came with some perks and came with some wealth. So if Abraham wasn't a needy man, then what would have interested him when God said, I will bless you and I will make your name great? Especially what would have compelled this man to leave everything that was comfortable when at 75 years old, he's being promised that his name will be great. This is a man that is in his age where he should be thinking about retirement. And God is saying, I'm about to start something new with you. Let's go on this adventure. But it's not an adventure, really, because let's look at Abraham's life. Abraham left the comfort of home and family, and he went to live in a hostile environment. He was a stranger, a foreigner, in a land that didn't guarantee justice even to the native. And he lived in fear. He lived in such fear that at least twice he lied about the the identity of his wife because he was afraid that people would kill him to get her. He, this is, we're talking about uh, a a true anxiety. And, And beyond that, it's not that he went to live in this land and live in luxury. In fact, he lived in tents, overlooking a land that he would one day receive. One day. Again, Abraham's age. What, he, he had a land that he left. Is he really looking forward at you know, 75, 80, 90 years old that he would one day enjoy this life of luxury in this land that God is about to give him? And beyond that, he didn't have any children. And that actually became a point of contention between him and, and God where he was, God came to him in, in Genesis chapter 15 and Abraham addresses him immediately with a complaint. God says, I am your great reward and and I will bless you. And then Abraham says, what's the point? What's the point of being blessed with all of this when I'm going to just pass it on to a stranger? You haven't given me the children that you've promised. How do I know that this is going to even make a difference? It's going to even matter in the future. When I'm gone, then what? And God chooses to reassure him using something that is very interesting. It's strange for us because we don't live in that culture. But in that day, it spoke powerfully to Abraham. What God asked Abraham to do is he asked him to cut these animals in half and then set them their, their halves in two different sides. It's, again, it sounds strange to us, but in that day, when two men were making a covenant, what they would do is they would do the exact same thing. They would cut the animals in half and put the halves on either side, and then they would walk together between these halves as if to declare, if I break this covenant with you, may what has been done to these animals be done to me. But what's most interesting about this particular story is that two men didn't walk between those halves. Not even one man, not even Abraham and God. But God himself walked between these animals twice, making a promise to himself. But what would that such a promise mean for him to walk between these animals twice himself? It means that he was saying, if I fail to accomplish this promise for Abraham then I'm not God. 
If I fail to give Abraham what I have promised, then all bets are off. I guess I'm not God. No. So Abraham, he looks at this and he watches God make this promise with himself about a covenant about him and about mankind. And that was enough for him. He could walk with a God like that and he could be sure that what God had promised will come to pass, even if he didn't get to see it with his eyes. But let's get back to earth here and let's look at what we're actually looking at because Again, Abraham, he's 80, 90 years old, and he's being promised to be, be, have a, to be a great nation. His name will be great, but when? Is he really thinking that one day he's going to see the generations of his children and his children's children? He's going to be living in this wonderful kingdom where people pay him honor and respect and, and, and say, Oh, great father Abraham, what you have done in the... No, he, d- he couldn't have actually possibly thought at his age, that he would have lived to see that day. And that's what's really important for us to look at and ask, what was Abraham really looking for? In Hebrews 11, verses 8 through 10, it says this, By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called out to a place that he was to receive it as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Again, he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abraham wasn't ever looking for today's reward. He always had his mind set on the kingdom that was coming. That was his focus. That was his drive. And that is why he lived the life that he lived. He was looking to a future kingdom and he was seeking that kingdom and he sought righteousness. Believing that God was able to actually bring all other things into fruition, that all other things would actually fall into place. It says in verse 12 that Abraham and the other men and women of faith all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. But isn't, isn't faith about receiving the promise? Well, yes, but not necessarily today. And that's sometimes what we struggle to remember. Because faith that Abraham had, he had to believe that the, in the one day when he would receive. Because these men and women, they died happy having greeted promises from afar that they would not actually walk in. Abraham never met his great-grandsons. But he could look in the eyes of his son, Isaac, and start counting stars because he knew that he served a God that was faithful. He knew that is, he knew as surely as Yahweh, the self existing one, the Lord is God. He knew that those children were coming and he knew that the kingdom that he was truly longing for would one day be established. 
That was the faith of Abraham, and that's what it looked like for him to seek the kingdom. I want to give another example that is uh, really important that we see in verses 24 through 26, where it's talking about Moses. It says that by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, a prince, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Moses refused royalty. I want you to imagine what his life was like as a prince of Egypt. We've seen the movies where they're car- you have six to eight men carrying a throne on their backs, walking through town, carrying someone who is important. That was probably Moses on that throne. And on that platform, he had people fanning him with palm branches, and he had women feeding him grapes and cheesecake and my favorite. And he was living in luxury. He was living large. And he threw it away. What a fool, right? No, not at all. He threw it all away. Why? (laughs) He threw it all away because he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. And he was looking to the reward. What reward? It's the reward of the kingdom of God. He knew that he was better off as a servant in the kingdom of God than as a prince in the kingdom of man. But before we get our heads too far in the clouds again, let's look at Moses' life having made this decision. He has decided to suffer with the people of God. And then for the next 40 years, he gets the privilege of wandering the desert with them. He gets to wander the desert leading a people that don't want to follow him, that wanted to go back to Egypt, that wanted to stone him. They're stubborn, they're ungrateful. And if it wasn't for the power of God that was standing right behind him at all times, they probably would have stoned him. What a life, right? What a life. Truly, what a life, because this is the life we should envy. We should desire to be ones that are willing to throw everything in the world away in order to gain what is truly important. Moses did live the life. Moses, like Abraham, was a man that was willing to let go of today's good for tomorrow's best. Because they were looking for a kingdom, they were seeking righteousness, and they were seeking what the world could never give them. The underlying reality behind these stories is that what we should desire and what we should be seeking is something that is much bigger than us. It was literally impossible for Abraham to receive what he was seeking in, 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 his, uh, in his time. And then there are other people, other men and women of faith at, 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 towards the end of chapter 11 of Hebrews that were commended through their faith But they did not receive what was promised. It says, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. 
What it's actually saying here is that God intentionally deprived these men and women of faith of their immediate gratification and their de- of their deepest longings in order to re- reveal something greater through us. The fact is, the reality is, that the life of faith that these men and women live, they now depend on us to live our life of faith well to see that kingdom ushered in. That's why we read in Hebrews chapter 12 that there's a great cloud of witnesses that's cheering us on. Why are they cheering us on? Why, why do you imagine they're cheering us on? It's not because they simply want us to succeed. It's because their success is tied into our success. If we don't reach the end of the race, if we do not win the race, then no one wins the race. Have you ever been in a relay? I used to run track and field. Uh, we ran the greatest race in the, in the world, which is the 4 by 100 meter dash, full of energy. And what you have in a relay is that um, you have your best runners in the beginning and at the end of the race. The first runner and the last runner are usually your fastest. Because you need someone in the front that can gain that lead, that gives your team the morale to, to actually believe that you can win. And once you've got that lead, the next two, they run as hard as they can. But that last one, the last runner, they call him the anchor. And they call him the anchor for good reason. Because their role, the anchor's role is not to win the race, but to hold on to the win that was already handed to him. And so the anchor is supposed to work his or her body beyond its limit to cross that finish line first. And what's interesting in a relay is that the, la- the first runner can't do anything about the last. And the last runner can't do anything about what he inherited from the first, second, and third. The only thing that each person can do is run. Run hard and run as if nothing else matters. And run as if it, the whole world is depending on, on them. What's really interesting about a relay as well is that the fastest runners in the world, when they run in a relay, they actually run their fastest times in the relay. And the reason for that is because it's, they're not running just their race. They're running for other people. They're running to see everyone win the prize. And in this race to usher in the kingdom of God, we may very well be the anchor, and we may not be. But we need to run in such a way that we pass on the baton to our children and our children to their children. And when we think of the kingdom this way, it becomes clear to see why Abraham was able to die a happy man, having seen only his son Isaac. The writer of Hebrews goes on to tell us in the latter verses of chapter 11 that many heroes of the faith were tortured. They were mocked. They were flogged, they were imprisoned, they were stoned to death, they were sawn in two, and they lived in caves and holes in the ground, destitute and mistreated and happy. These are the fathers and the mothers of our faith. They, they are people who gave up everything, literally their own lives, to have what God has promised they would eventually receive. They lost the whole world, and they were happy with their lot in life. 
Verse 38 makes a declaration about these men and women that should be the envy of every Christian. It says that they lived this way because the world was not worthy of them. The world was not enough of a prize. So they were ready to trade everything to work for another one. And so the question that we must ask ourselves is, is the world enough for us? Because when Jesus was uh, saying that we can't serve two masters, it's either God or it's mammon. Mammon refers to more than money, but possessions and worldly wealth and pursuits. I believe he was also giving a warning, because the truth is, if you decide to seek what the world will give, if you're seeking to gain the world, then I'm sorry, then the world may be all that you'll ever get. But if you decide to seek the kingdom of God and seek his righteousness, then you will receive a prize that is reserved only for those for whom the whole world is not a worthy reward. So do not worry about the little things like food, like shelter, clothing, weather, politics, security, because your father knows what you need. Seek first his kingdom. Seek his righteousness. Then you'll have everything that you need and more than you could have ever imagined. Let's pray.